We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. In May 1940, the German army won the greatest military victory in the history of the world. In just six weeks, in reality in a couple of days, the greatest army in the world, the French army and their ally, the British, had been completely and utterly defeated. The win was stunning. A new technique to fight this new war in Europe had been developed. The French were taken by surprise. So were the British. The most surprised of all were the Germans themselves. The secret to win this war that Hitler had accidentally dragged Germany into prematurely was clear. After it had actually been done, not before then, replicating the technique used in France, in Russia, would quickly bring all of Europe under German control, bring about the surrender of Britain, or at least make sure that no landing from England would be possible, because it would be facing the entire German army, not a German army mostly tied down fighting on the Eastern Front, as happened on D-Day. But the finer point of what had happened in France in that heady summer had been lost. That finer point was that Hitler should have decisively won World War II, in that single campaign, at least have set up the springboard to make sure of victory when he invaded Russia the next year. But that prize of winning the war had irretrievably slipped from his hands by the time France had surrendered. And the reason why it slipped from his hands was going to be the reason why he was destined to lose the war. It was as Cassius said to Brutus, In Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, Act 1, Scene 2, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Hitler tried to reproduce what the elite panzer forces had done in France when he invaded Russia in 1941, but the lightning war ran out of puff. Why? Well, that's for another program in this series. Blitzkrieg a rapid war waged by fast-moving armoured forces, mostly fought by tanks, had been born on 10 May 1940. It died on about 19 December 1941, in the snow close to the Russian town of Tula, near Moscow. In this series of programs, I'll tell you the incredible story that you probably haven't heard before of how the Blitzkrieg was born against the wishes of the majority of the top German generals, and how it died 19 months later. Karl Freiser, German historian, wrote this summary of the history of those two blitzkriegs. To boil it down to a simple formula, 
the difference between the campaign in the West and the campaign in the East was that the 1940 campaign in the West was an unplanned but successful blitzkrieg, whereas the 1941 campaign in the East was a planned but unsuccessful blitzkrieg. So let me explain. I wouldn't be completely lying to you if I told you that the German victory over France and England in 1940 was all thanks to a German writer of westerns telling stories of courage and heroism by the frontiersman hero of the novels of German author Karl May, Old Shatterhand, and his companion, an Apache chief named Winnetou. One of the hallmarks of Old Shatterhand was his inventive ideas to triumph over his enemies. One of the most avid readers of the Kalmay stories was Adolf Hitler. In her book, He Was My Chief, the memoirs of Adolf Hitler's secretary, Christa Schroeder, she wrote of Hitler, He also spoke of his mother, to whom he was very attached, and of his father's violence. I never loved my father, he used to say, but feared him. He was prone to rages and would resort to violence. My poor mother would then always be afraid for me. When I read Karl May once, that w- it was a sign of bravery to hide one's pain. I decided that when he beat me the next time, I would make no sound. When it happened, I knew my mother was standing anxiously at the door, I counted every stroke out loud. Mother thought I had gone mad. And when I reported to her with a beaming smile, 32 strokes father gave me. From that day, I never needed to repeat the experiment, for my father never beat me again. After a German plane accidentally crossed the Belgian border and was forced to land on 19 January 1940 with Major Helmut Reinberger as its only passenger, He was carrying the German plans for attacking France that year. Both men were captured. Had the plans been captured, the Germans had to consider what to do. Did they need to come up with a new plan? There didn't seem to be a lot of options about what to do. That misfortune proved to be reason that the Germans thrashed France a few months later with a new, infinitely better plan. This incident brought to the surface Hitler's instinctive dislike of the plans that the German general staff had to invade France using the same route, basically, that they had taken in World War I. Hitler took the opportunity to again criticise the German general staff over their plan. Hitler told his generals that he missed the kind of spark, the kind of idea that would have introduced the element of surprise to the German attack. He told his generals that while they had indeed read their Clausewitz, they hadn't read enough of the adventures of Karl May, written about the Wild West frontier of America. Many times during the war, Hitler's generals had this accusation thrown at them. Hindsight gives wonderful perspectives. In 1939, the Allies were supremely confident of the outcome of any German attack. The former chief of staff of the French army, General Vagon, addressed a gathering of officers in Lille in July 1939. He told them, 
The French army is stronger than ever before in its history. Its equipment is the best. Its fortifications are first-rate. Its morale is excellent. And it has an outstanding high command. Nobody wants war. But if we are forced to win a new victory, then we will win it. The Treaty of Versailles had reduced the German army to a minuscule size. The German army, when it was taken into another world war in 1939, brought on because of its attack on Poland, was not something that the English feared. Author Patrick Turnbull, in his book Dunkirk, Anatomy of Disaster, wrote this when he heard about the outbreak of World War II. The news that Germany had invaded Poland was blazoned in vast headlines on the front page of the local newspaper, thrust into my hands. It was 1 September 1939, and I was breakfasting on the terrace of a hotel in Fez's Ville Nouvelle. The Germans, I was convinced, had committed an act of suicidal folly. Britain had the world's most powerful navy, France the world's finest army. The end would come quickly, probably before Christmas, and with little difficulty. What happened between 3 September 1939 and when the Germans launched their attack on France on 10 May 1939 was called the Phony War. Critics have said that France should have attacked Germany while it was tied up in Poland. The French army wasn't really ready to launch such an attack, and logically, why did it need to? It may have been their thinking. I'm sure the Poles would have welcomed the intervention of the French on the western side of Germany as they were being invaded. But ignoring the needs of the Poles, as the French and British had ignored the needs of the Czechs, it made a lot of sense for the French and British to either just wait or let the Germans bring the war on in France, which they would inevitably lose. Protected by the mighty fortifications of the Maginot Line, the French and the British could calmly wait for the economic effects of their naval blockade. Just like in World War I, they knew that time in the long run would work for them. Realistically, the only option for the Germans was to attempt a sally out of their trapped, surrounded country to save it from being inevitably starved out. So the Germans attacked France on 10 May 1940. How they did was not remotely what anyone had expected. Public opinion in the West was forced to do a backflip when the consequences of the German attack sank in. It's no understatement to say that the Germans were equally taken by surprise at the outcome. When the Germans broke through at Sedan, Hitler shouted, This is a miracle! An absolute miracle! Hitler wasn't alone on the German side. Even Guderian wrote in his memoirs, The success of our attack struck me as almost a miracle. But when all was said and done, the reason for this stunning victory was obvious. At a press conference in Berlin on 20 May 1940, while the fighting still raged in France and the war was still not officially won, the head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring, announced that the operation's plan for the campaign in the West was the very own personal work of the Führer. He said, Adolf Hitler's genius as a warlord 
also caused a revolution in warfare in that it breached strategic principles that had been held sacrosanct until now. Hitler himself reminisced on the night of 2nd, 3rd January 1942, recorded in his table talks. When I go to Obersalzburg, I am not drawn there merely by the beauty of the landscape. I feel myself far from petty things, and my imagination is stimulated. When I study a problem elsewhere, I see it less clearly. I am submerged by the details. All my great decisions were taken at Olbe Salzburg. That's where I conceived the offensive of May 1940 and the attack on Russia. Goebbels' Nazi propaganda machine trumpeted the Blitzkrieg as Hitler's invention. It announced that the inventor of these new methods was Adolf Hitler, the greatest military genius of all time. Grosster Feldherr Seiten. Wilhelm Weiss, the chief editor of the Nazi newspaper, the Volkischer Beobachter, really got on board with all of the hype when he said, It was Adolf Hitler, the National Socialist, who demonstrated the ability to master this task and successfully to stride the bold path from static to dynamic warfare. The revolutionary spirit of his brown army swept over Europe's battlefields together with his panzer divisions and bomber wings. Later in the war, Konstantin Hurl wrote an article in Germany on the campaign in the West. It read, It was not along the lines of the Schleifen Plan, or on the grounds of the Cannae Doctrine, or some other rigid theories, but rather through free artistic creativity that sprang from the inspiration of martial genius, that the Führer led the German Wehrmacht to the most glorious victories in their glorious history. At first, the West was reduced to stunned silence at France disappearing as a nation of the world in a matter of a few days. But a plausible explanation was soon found. It was the Blitzkrieg. Allegedly, Hitler had invented a completely revolutionary strategy, the strategy of the Blitzkrieg, which his generals then implemented on the battlefield. So the world at large didn't seem to disagree with the Nazi propaganda. It gave their generals, who had failed so miserably, an easy excuse. Was this miracle Hitler's? Was there another explanation for it, not to detract from the undoubted genius of Adolf Hitler? On 21 October 1939, Erich von Manstein was the chief of staff of Army Group A. The commanding general was Gerd von Rundstedt, a general who would spend World War II commanding critical armies on critical fronts and periodically being sacked by Hitler before being brought back again because he was reliable and competent. On that day, 21st October 1939, Manstein received the German general staff's plans for the attack on France. It was totally unimaginative. It resembled in part the Schlieffen plan of World War I, which had failed, for reasons too complicated and unnecessary to go into here. The plan, in short, stank. Manstein saw two major problems with it. 
The first and most obvious was that it would involve the German main thrust, the Schwerpunkt, hitting the French-British main thrust, their Schwerpunkt, head-on. No dazzling victory was going to come from that. There was a good chance of a stalemate. But if the plan did succeed, at least to the extent of the German army pushing along the Channel Coast, then the further the German armies got from Germany, the better the chance for a decisive French-British counterattack, cutting off and destroying the leading German elements. It was a hopeless, uninspired, unimaginative idea. Hitler was unimpressed, but there was nothing else on offer. It's no use criticising something unless you've got an alternative, though, and Manstein had an alternative. His idea was for the Germans to attack from the centre, out of the Ardennes area of Belgium, with fast-moving panzer forces pushing towards the mouth of the Somme River on the Channel coast. It was a great idea, but nothing like it had ever been contemplated before. The campaign in Poland was basically a World War I-style attack, with panzer divisions cooperating with the infantry divisions as their spearheads. The headquarters of the infantry divisions had been in charge of operations and in charge of the panzer divisions. It was World War I tactics with more modern and more numerous tanks. So how did Manstein come up with this radically new idea of using the panzer divisions en masse, moving at high speed towards the English Channel, without worrying about their flanks or rear? Well, it was no accident, as fate would have it. Manstein was able to make his plans because both he and Guderian were based in Koblenz in this period, of getting the German army ready for the coming offensive. The headquarters of Manstein's Army Group A was located in the Kurfürstlich Schloss, the Prince Elector's palace, which was located on the banks of the Rhine. The headquarters of the 19th Corps, which would later be called Panzer Corps Guderian, was also in Koblenz. Both Manstein and Guderian knew the Ardennes well from World War I, Manstein knew the lie of the land in the Ardennes intimately. He'd taken part in the German defensive battles in Champagne in the spring of 1917, in the Reim offensives in May and July of 1918, and he'd fought with the 213th Infantry Division in the Sedan area during that autumn. Guderian had attended a general staff war school at Sedan in early 1918, and thus was able to confirm on the basis of a detailed map study and his personal recollections from 21 years before that the operations that Manstein had planned could in fact be carried out, Guderian had a very significant proviso to Manstein's plan. A sufficient number of armoured and motorised divisions must be employed, if possible all of them. Guderian as commander of 19th Corps wasn't pleased about the dispersal of the armoured forces between the two army groups A and B. It broke his famous maxim. Klotzen nicht klecken. Clout, don't dribble. This was welcome grist to Manstein's mill. Not only did he have the supporting evidence from Germany's leading proponent of armoured warfare, but also he knew 
that Hitler listened to Guderian's advice. Both Guderian and Bernstein had attended the War Academy in Berlin in 1913. They don't appear to have mixed socially with each other during that time, but it did give them a common link and their mutual respect, bordering on admiration, clearly shows in their respective memoirs after the war. After the war, Manstein declared graciously, Ultimately, it was Guderian's Elan which inspired our tanks in their dash around the backs of the enemy to the Channel Coast. No one seems to know just how much time Manstein and Guderian spent together discussing the plan that Manstein was about to come up with. It seems likely that they did spend a great deal of time together. Over the days after Guderian crossed the Meuse River and then hurled his tanks towards the Channel Coast, the decisions he made clearly reflected the Manstein art of war. Guderian was a great tank commander, but Manstein... He was something else. What was it about Manstein? Karl-Heinz Freiser had this to say about him in his book, The Blitzkrieg Legend. Manstein's thinking was entirely different. His thinking ran along straight logical lines only at the strategic echelon, where, in contrast to a number of other generals, he displayed astonishing foresightness. On the operational echelon, on the other hand, his system consisted of again and again acting quite consciously in an unsystematic fashion. For him, as a military leader, the best solution often was not the logical solution, because the enemy might well be figuring the same thing. Instead, the solution had to be seemingly illogical, and the thing to do was to take the enemy by surprise. The crazy idea of putting the main effort against the Western powers in the geographically most unfavorable spot and attacking with the bulk of the panzer divisions of all places through the extremely difficult Ardennes is just one of many examples. This incalculability would later also make him dangerous to the Soviets on the Eastern Front. One essential difference between Manstein and Halder emerged precisely when it came to making decisions. The latter would often sometimes ruminate night after night whenever he faced grave decisions. He would run through all possibilities and keep calling on his assistants for advice. On the other hand, Manstein was a man of fast, often lonely decisions. In case of doubt, he trusted his intuition rather than mathematical calculations. In historiography, he is today indisputably considered the ablest among Hitler's generals. His forte was maneuvering with large formations on the operational echelon. This is where he developed a virtuosity in which he proved to be far superior to his opponents. Freiser comments that Franz Halder, the chief of the general staff, showed resentment towards the daring genius of Manstein. Hitler, on the other hand, seemed to be terrified by the awesome brainpower of Manstein. Hitler met with Manstein on 17 February 1940. After the meeting, he commented to his inner circles, Certainly a particularly bright fellow with great operational talent, but I do not trust him. 
But I think David Irving, a much tainted historian because of his obvious warm feelings towards the Third Reich, in his book Hitler's War, said, Hitler's respect for General von Manstein's ability bordered on fear. Conversely, Manstein, the Prussian aristocrat, who had once been a page at the Emperor's court, couldn't conceal his loathing of Hitler, who he saw as a vulgar man of violence. In the next episode, I'll tell you about Manstein's plan and how it resulted in one of the other great German generals and chief of staff, Franz Halder, falling out with him, resulting in Manstein's being promoted out of the way. But it turned out that the two great minds ultimately thought alike, Hitler and Manstein. I'm joking, of course. Well, not entirely. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.